0: Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I am here with Steve O'Neill thanks, Martin. and uh, th- welcome, Steve, and our uh, very special guest Ian Mulhern. Oh, so, nice. welcome, Ian. And um, first of all, can you tell us about your work and um, what you're doing to renew the centre? Sure. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming
1: to coming to chat. And chat. It's good to, uh, uh, to to touch base with with your podcast. Um, so, I guess just to tell you a bit about uh, renewing the centre. So, we're the newest element. The Tony Blair Institute I guess uh, you could describe it as, and it was really uh, the, the, the idea for it came from uh, Tony's observation really that uh, you know obviously there's lots of reasons why moderate politics is sort of in in abeyance at the moment and some of it is about leadership and some of it is about uh, you know you uh, know uh, uh, developments in in the economy and the world and all that sort of stuff but some of it is just about a kind of lack of ideas a lack of a program and really that's what RTC is here to try and help to contribute to to develop a policy agenda to give uh, moderate politicians uh, a a program to run on ideas about how things can be better without appealing to the extremes so that's really our our major uh, uh, purpose
0: okay and what are the vessels or channels that actually you seek to promote those, is that within existing political parties, do you think that the current political parties are not fit for the purpose of actually furthering sort of centrist ideas at the moment, certainly within the Labour Party, you know, that's very much a live debate about what, it you know, is it a vehicle for the, the centre or a vehicle for the left wing? Well, I think it's certainly the case, undeniably the case,
1: that moderates don't really have control of any of the, any of the two biggest parties, either two biggest parties at the moment, which gives them, uh, you know, much more urgency to our work because they don't. Uh, politicians of, of a moderate bent don't have the. Uh, you know the, the the paraphernalia they need to do policy development and to develop new ideas. So that's really important. I don't think that necessarily means that uh, you know all the parties that are busted flush and we need new ones. I mean I think we're agnostic on that ourselves. Uh, we're more about a style of politics and approach to policy and uh, giving the many moderate uh, politicians that there are still in UK politics um, something to run with. And what is the style
0: of politics?
1: Well, I guess the um, this gets into the kind of question of what what is centrism really, and um, I think the accusation uh, of people who uh, would disagree with it or, or would uh, um, would tend to um, say centrism is is kind of a, a, an empty vessel. Is that it's really just uh, an approach that is there for political advantage? It has no principles, and it seeks to be basically triangulating between mm. different. Political uh, extremes, and, and I think that's kind of um, not the, uh, you know, not not a fair description of of what centrism uh, really is. I mean, I think there's three main reasons for that. One is that I think um, it's about really it's about um, uh, recognizing and surfacing the fact that there are valid points at the extremes of the political debate. Um, uh, but what you tend to hear from both sides in this increasingly polarised debate is you only hear them double down on one side of the argument. There's no reference really made to the validity of the opposing side, and so centrism is, I think, first and foremost, a, a, a style of argument, and a, an approach uh, that is about surfacing those valid points and trying to uh, and trying to work away uh, through them, recognising their relative strength. So, you know, for example, at the moment, we'd have uh, um, the the, the Labour Party or the left talking a lot about inequality and how it uh, causes all sorts of uh, problems, bad outcomes, uh, undermines the legitimacy of a market economy, things like that. Um, uh, uh, but then on the right, you'd hear about, you know, regulating and taxing is, is, is bad for economic growth and under, undermines the functioning of the market economy. So, you get these two kind of rhetorical... Uh, uh, Bases, and I think most uh, moderate people recognize there's some validity of both of those critiques so it's about framing the discussion within uh, within that uh, recognizing those those, those things um, I think the second thing that, that uh, really kind of uh, defines what we're doing is there's something in, in centrism about learning as we go you know we know that say um, I mean, the treasury view of the 1930 s that fiscal policy can 't do anything to help in a downturn was a very bad uh, approach uh, to to policy making and led to lots of misery equally, we kind of know that you know the mass nationalization projects in the post war world were pretty bad uh, for a whole range of reasons and so in a lot of ways, centrism is about learning it's an evidence based approach it is about learning as we go along and learning some of the lessons of the past. And that doesn't mean you can't uh, revisit some of those questions, but it does mean you have to be able to say, if you're proposing something radical like that, why is it going to be different this time? Uh, and again, taking into account the uh, opposing points of view. And I think the third aspect of the approach to politics, if you like, of centrism is, is really about um, uh, uh, the intrinsic benefits of a unifying approach to politics. Mm. I mean, ultimately, politics is a way for society to, to operate. Uh, and therefore it's inherently problematic if we're stuck in divided camps. Uh, we have to recognise the legitimacy of other people's viewpoints and find a way to uh, function as a society, and obviously you know, Brexit, not least, has put huge strain on that entire approach to, to how we should uh, 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 run things.
0: It's interesting that um, you, you, talk, you make the positive case for sensory approach. I think too often at the moment it's um apologized for mm. Oh, well, you know the um the i think both political parties probably see the the extremes of their parties as almost the conscience mm. that the moderate the sort of centrist parts of the party are the the bits that get their hands dirty that are the sort of unacceptable sometimes acceptable face of well, we have to do this to uh, whether to get things done to get into government, you know, whatever. But now the parties have kind of been taken over by these social consciences. And it's it's good, obviously, from a centrist podcast point of view to actually hear someone making the case for uh, a style of politics that accepts that the other side is not evil, that evidence matters and you learn from things. And actually putting both sides together is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... Yeah, it's very rare that it's not just apologised for, but Steve. Um, thanks. Uh, one thing that's really interested me, and
2: something that I've sort of pondered a bit, is whether uh, renewing centrism is uh, a matter of going back to sort of, I mean, what, what would be comfortable politics to me around about twenty ten, before before Brexit, before all the sort of fallout before Trump, etc. Or is it a case of renewing ideas for? the next, the 2020s. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, I think I started off with the attitude that wouldn't it be great if we turn the clock back and I could come around to thinking, actually, we need some radical new ideas mm-hmm. that, that aren't uh, as polarising as some of those on the extreme. But I just wanted to get your reaction to that.
0: So I, I just... Um, I've, I've often thought about this and the, the experience of the Liz Kendall leadership election in Labour, that people said that I sort of criticised her for um, sometimes putting forward the same policies that were Relevant in the late 90s. So, to have, how do you balance the need to sort of re- revisit the same policies and how much of it is about the same approach to that we talked about that was once preeminent in certainly in the late part in possibly conservatives as well, but not perhaps for so long?
1: Yeah, I think you touch on a really important point there that, you know, as I started off by saying, the usual critique is. Is this centrism as a kind of a vehicle for electoral advantage, purely electoral advantage and no real anchor? Uh, and as I say, I don't think that's uh, at all an appropriate description of what centrism is. But I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the legitimate critique of centrism is it can quite easily fall into conservatism and that is more in danger of discrediting it than, than anything else. So, um, so uh, and it's also true to to pick up on what you were saying that um, you know, the, 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 the activist basis of the two major parties, they'd have these advantages of rhetoric and energy. And those are things that um, uh, are difficult for the center to, to capture. Uh, but certainly the energy side of things needs to come from having a reforming agenda um, I think it's particularly, um, you know, there's no necessary conservatism about about our centrist agenda. There's uh, there's a huge amount uh, that we need to uh, change and fix. Um, and I think one of the problems that perhaps Labour had or centrist Labour candidates in 2010 was that um, I think after such a long period in office, it's very hard to separate to see enough uh, what the new radical agenda should be. And um, I think. Uh, you never know, quite recovered from that, that uh,
0: exhaustion in a sense So what are the particular areas of centrist policy that you think need to be renewed whether um, economic thinking, sort of political discourse foreign policy so um, something we can come back to later on is that this, the centre ground is something we talk a lot about in this podcast is where the centre ground is. The centre ground is a, uh, on the economy has shifted an awful lot in recent years and it's gone from sort of drives dust austerity to spending tax on left, right and centre. So what are the particular issues, and maybe we can come back again to the election and what we should be looking out for, but what are the sort of issues that you think are the, where the centre needs to be reforming and looking at big ideas?
1: So I think the one of the interesting kind of um, dynamics that underlies a lot of this is that the, the economics world, I think it's fair to say it's moved significantly to what you might describe to the left um, in recent years in in a lot of dimensions. I mean, one obvious example of that is uh, the minimum wage, where probably in the mid-90s you would have seen a plurality of economists saying, this is a bad idea. Um, And now I think it's it's broadly accepted that some of the worst um, risks of it simply weren't realised. And so we're now into this entirely different uh, uh, paradigm where, where even left and right are sort of bidding up the minimum wage and you know at some point we may have to question whether that is uh, having uh, negative effects that we can't see um, uh, and things like that but I think more generally um, there's you know there's this 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 greater shift towards uh, particularly away from broad brush assessments of the role of government and a recognition of the uh, many ways in which um, it needs to get its microeconomic policies right to do everything from tackling climate change to um, you know stimulating innovation and that kind of thing and a, uh, you know a, a kind of um, a, the swing from a very uh, very heavy-handed state intervention in the 70s to the laissez-faire that's, uh, approach um, is still sort of we're still coming back from those two uh, extremes. I think so there's I think there's a, a, a big agenda there um, In, in the sort of productivity space, which is perhaps the single most critical thing. I think we face right now, you know, since 2010 We've had an economy that is well since 2008 we've had an economy that's essentially flatlined the engine of productivity is completely stalled uh, people's wages aren't simply aren't growing Uh, And that has to be a major contributing factor to to fanning the flames of of populism. So um, what's interesting in the sense, I mean, we'll come on to the election perhaps in in, in a minute, but I think what's interesting about it is the absence of that debate, really, from the entire election. Uh, And this is a a state of economic affairs that's completely unprecedented in 200 years, uh, and yet it doesn't really uh, feature, which is um, uh, really quite surprising. I think we need to do something about it
0: just to pick up on, on something that uh, is part of the problem that the centre has, that it can be a bit of a, uh, not much fun. That He talks about the minimum wage, and he said, well, at some point, we might have to look at whether the minimum wages have negative effects. And is that just, if you're on the left, then you can make promise, you know, the Labour Party manifesto sent semi- it, you know the last election but seemingly more this election is free stuff left right and center mm. conservatives a sort of usual red meat manifesto is tax cuts deregulation left right and center and the approach that you've just taken is well we're going to have to look at some facts and actually this doesn't look you know maybe we're going to have to stop raising the minimum wage and is, is that part is that something that the center just has to go you know what we're the grind-ups here, we have to take horrible decisions and we're not going to be very fun? Or is there some way that could become more rhetorically Uh, aspirational yeah well
1: i think i think it's definitely true that it's hard to compete with the rhetorical uh scope of the of the left and the right that you've just outlined that that is certainly the case it doesn't need to be uh, as uh, pragmatic and lacking in fun as you uh, as you set out i mean some obvious other centrist kind of specific policy areas are, are things like social care where the scope for a set of Quite sweeping solutions that are, are large, but mm. big arguments need to be made for those, mm. uh, and you need to take a lot of people with you. So that there's a, a lot of scope for change there. I think also there's a um, there's a there's a lot of scope for. Um, new models of the welfare state that, that uh, we should look at that aren't necessarily about a kind of state discussion about uh, the 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 uh, scale of benefit redistribution and that sort of thing but are about uh, helping people to manage the shocks they face within their own lives because most for most people uh, it is The kind of need, the the needs they have for for skills to manage risks around house prices and things like that, um, that occupy their day-to-day concerns. And generally, we've taken the view that the state is there to provide a a safety net and then uh, let individuals uh, get on with their lives. But in recent years, we've started to see. Uh, because of policy necessities developments in some policy areas, which are quite interesting, I think could be taken further, and the most obvious one, perhaps or the biggest obvious one is perhaps alter enrolment where you have the state helping people to uh, essentially manage risks within their own lives by using some of its unique capacity to uh, to either help you save through tax system or to um, uh, or to um, facilitate uh, management of risks and borrow money in the case of sort of um, tuition fees and things like that. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that can be done around that to build that into a much more holistic, uh, um, individualized welfare state that could perhaps sit on top of uh, some of the kind of uh, elements we've had in place since the middle of the 20th century. So there's a a lot of scope for radical and interesting ideas which are not just stuck in the old mould. And I think we should explore those.
0: So just to pick up on something. The, your sort of criticism of the further left and right and their rhetoric about free stuff is essentially that they're doing it without paying for it, without being honest. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is your criticism of them they're not being honest, they're only talking about one side of the equation, here's some free stuff, and by the way, we'll come tax it for it later. Yeah, I think
1: that's basically right. I mean, for example, the, the kind of... Uh, the headline rhetorical pitch that you that you uh, outlined uh, a moment ago is very much uh, there's no recognition of the trade-offs that are involved with that. So if we're going to talk about the conservative right, and the need for the need and in inverted commas for uh, labour market deregulation. There's no discussion of, in practical terms, what that might mean, what the pros and cons of it might be. I mean, you know, when, on that specific issue, when you look at the evidence, it's very hard to find anything that would shift the dial in terms of uh, productivity or prosperity. In fact, most of that agenda would probably have the opposite effect. Um, so, but there's no, not even an attempt to engage with the opposite side of the argument there, and I think that's the, the fundamental flaw.
2: Steve? Yeah, I mean, just reflecting a bit on what you said about the kind of uh, rhetorical advantage that that extremes have, I wonder whether, um, is there a need for uh, the centre to be able to tie these kind of solutions you talk about, which are radical and are actually addressing some of the problems we have, around some talk around values? And I think that's quite a hard thing to do. But I wonder if you've given that any thought.
1: Sorry, so you're saying uh, around value, what the values of centrism might be? So,
2: way back in, say, 2010, like, equality of opportunity was a kind of real good buzzword or social mobility, the kind of things people knew what that meant, not just in terms of the kind of economic outputs, but also what kind of society we lived in. Yeah. And I don't know if it's completely fallen away from the kind of lexicon these days, but I I think people are now talking about inequality much more, for example, than that. Yeah. Um, So, I wonder if there are ways, uh, you know, for centrists in the 2020s, uh, to sort of tie these ideas around and out, or or maybe that's something that, I, I wish I had an answer,
1: but I know I'd do that, but maybe yeah. that's part of getting, getting, sort of cutting through, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, I, I guess, some of the things that have become more salient in recent years have perhaps uh, not... Um, uh, the, the, the ones where the problems are, if you know what I mean. So for example, as you mentioned, social mobility seems to have uh, uh, d- declined as a as an issue, but also the aspiration and the whole idea of that seems to have kind of uh, died a to death too. And there is a lot of focus on inequality, but when you look at the, you know, the data on this, um, I mean, you can argue that inequality is just too high. But if we're looking at changes on most of the headline metrics not a lot has happened for uh you know 20 plus years now so it's not obvious why that has risen up the agenda but i I think all of these ideas are probably tied together and they probably do link to uh, what's been happening or not happening in the economy for the last uh 10 or 11 years um you know in a world where you simply don't have any uh, productivity growth you, uh, you, it, it's a nonsense to talk about aspiration um, because most people are effectively engaged in a in what's a zero sum game. The size of the cake is not is not growing, um, and therefore distribution arguments become much more um, uh, entrenched and much more important. Um, and so that's kind of the tragedy of where we are: that some things that actually really matter, uh, like aspiration, social mobility, and those kind of questions, uh, have got shunted off. Uh, the agenda uh, in favour of a kind of zero-sum debate around who's got what. And I'm not sure, and we, you know, until we can get things moving again in terms of economic growth and prosperity, uh, that's going to be hard to change. I wonder how much that's magnified by the kind of style of politics question.
0: I have in mind
2: social media is something that, you know, when I look at Twitter, the things that get all the attention, I know Twitter is not an accurate reflection of society. The things that get attention are emotive, are extreme, are often angry, but any other things. I just wonder as well whether being a
1: centrist in a social media world is something that's an an added difficulty. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, yeah, if you if you if you take the. Yeah, the advantages of energy and rhetoric, then yeah, the social media platform is, is, plays well for both of those, amplifies both of those. Uh, I mean, I guess at the same time, there's, uh, there's plenty of uh, uh, scope for uh, uh, moderate people to be debating things and discussing things as well. But it's clear that certainly in terms of what gets traction in the political sphere, it's, 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 it's only serving to, to drive that Uh, sort of uh, those extremes whether or not that's inevitably going to be it it strikes me as the um, inevitable result of a you know new technology like this uh, appearing there's a bit of an overreaction to it there's a a lot of people don't know how to handle it Um, and I I think I'm not as gloomy as some people are about it I think you know it's a sort of of thing that will come back into balance a little bit more and people learn how to not go overboard when a politician says something uh, slightly off, off, on, on social media. Eventually, that will become normalised a bit more. But um, we've obviously still got a way to go. And against the current economic backdrop, I think it all exacerbates this this uh, moment that we're in.
0: Uh, you talked about the the need for economic growth to underpin some of the sort of positive social factors and social change. So, what are the centrist sort of top things on the economy at the moment? We've gone for. Um, a sort of Keynesianism from both the main parties. So what's a more centrist sort of economic sort of priorities, let's say? Well, I
1: think it, to the extent that both parties, uh, I mean, to be clear, we haven't seen much evidence of this from from the Conservatives particularly to date, although they're promising things uh uh, now, um, I, I think there is a, 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 a very strong case for uh, massively increasing uh, public investment, um, uh, and we have, you know, we have creaking infrastructure, we have borrowing costs on the floor. We have there's plenty of reasons for us to uh, be doing a lot more on on that front. Um, so I, so that's, that's got to be a key element of any response, and we need to really ramp up that, uh, particularly with the climate challenge and, and various other technological uh, challenges down the track. The need for e- investment in economic infrastructure is kind of uh, rarely been uh, greater. Uh, so I think that is an important part, uh, but it's not sufficient. Um, I think we have a number of other things that, that are going on. Um, Alongside that, one is uh, the need to. You know, we've got a very much a changing economy. It's coming to be dominated by, uh, you know, intangible investment by um, and, and becoming increasingly an online uh, world. And in that kind of uh, that kind of an economy, you've got to you've got business models which tend towards monopoly uh, and uh, tend to be less uh, reduce competition and therefore reduce innovation. And so we've got to work out whether we have a kind of regulatory regime in our um, in our economy that is fit for purpose today. Uh, is that part of our problem uh, on on growth? It probably is. Uh, we've got to work out how to uh, boost research and development and, uh, and and stimulate more private sector research and development um, in a way that is kind of broad based and, and spread across the the country. Um, and, uh, and and those things are really going to be critical to getting things uh, to to trying to change the rate of growth of productivity but then i think we've got also some classic long standing problems that we've never really cracked you know, the post-16 skills system has always been uh, um, something that, is, that has just been essentially ignored by uh, policymakers, or it's they've chopped and changed where they uh, have sought to intervene, giving no stability and no um, certainty to the sector. Uh, so just from an industrial strategy perspective, that's a terrible way to try and address that problem. So we need to achieve some kind of consensus on a way forward and uh, resources to be put into uh, that agenda. So, there's some of the areas where I think we need some urgency and some energy behind them, because only by attacking
0: those things, we're going to get uh, things moving in the right direction again. I just want to ask then, is it that there isn't as such a centrist economic policy? Rather, is it a matter of seeing what money needs, to, or what needs money spent on it, what money can be raised, and trying to pragmatically come to a solution, accepting the trade-offs around, you know, square in those particular circles. So, there's not a case of income tax must be below, like, X rate, above X rate, you know, the yeah. rate or something like that. So, it's very much just a practical, pragmatic assessment of what needs money spent on it and how money can be raised at any particular time.
1: I, I think there's a couple of points I'll make about that. One is that I don't think there's any necessary centrist position uh, on any of these things. I think, as I say, I think it's more about style of argument. And you could argue for... You know, expenditure as a proportion of GDP to be thirty-five percent, as long as you, as long as you, as a centrist, if you wanted to, but you'd have to uh, stack up some kind of difficult arguments, I think, to do that, and it might not be very convincing. Similarly, you could argue it should be fifty-plus percent, and again, you would struggle, I think. But it's more about the style of argument in terms of direction of travel on broad levels. I would, um, I would say, um, there's a couple of observations. Uh, We can make about where uh, expenditures proportion of GDP should go from here, Um, and and the the most important one I think is is that you know the state specialises in providing essentially education and uh, health, and these are the dominant um, kind of parts of its expenditure in terms of public services, and those are services which. You know, economists have called them superior goods. They're things you spend disproportionately more on the richer you get. Now, if the state specialises in those, uh, and if the economy ever grows again, uh, then as we get richer, you know, it, it, we, we should expect—well, we will, as a society, one way or another, spend more money on health and education. So the only political decision to be made is: well, how do we want to fund it? Do we want to fund it through taxation, or do we want to let everything be done privately by the individual? Uh, so you face, particularly in health, you face this inevitable choice: that you either—it—it it continues to do what it's done over the last past century and starts to cannibalise the budgets of other uh, other departments, uh, or you start to it starts to put up a pressure on taxation uh, inevitably. If you don't accommodate that, then you end up having to have uh, it as more of a means-tested system and um, uh, and going towards uh, more private provision. Um, now I think we know um, from evidence around the world that, say, in the case of health, uh, sort of state-funded systems are, tend to be more more efficient. Um, because of the massive market failures in health, so for me that gives a clear direction of travel in the long run for where you would expect tax and spending as a proportion of GDP to go. Brilliant. I want to ask with that comment, which was, which was fascinating, but also
2: about the foreign affairs side, because we're slightly uh, distracted here by Brexit and our own domestic problems. But I mean, look at what I thought of as Centrism for years ago was also being bold on in the world stage, standing up. Uh, uh, for things like democracy, for liberty, etc. And right now, the story globally doesn't look good on that murder one, Putin and, and the like. I just wondered if you touched on some of those issues at all and what kinds of, I suppose, uh, attitudes and perhaps some foreign policy uh, perhaps with one more from our
1: leaders than we're seeing uh, or certainly in this general election debate. Yeah, it's not something, I mean, certainly in see so far, we've primarily focused on the domestic uh, policy agenda, but um, it's, I mean, it's, it's clearly the case that, um, uh, you know, a sensible kind of centrist uh, perspective on the, the foreign policy agenda has to be um, uh, focused on uh, supporting liberal democracies around the world, supporting the rule of law, particularly as it's um, uh, uh, and a rules-based international system, particularly with things like uh, the rise of China and India, where, you know, we're going to um, obviously see uh, various um, uh, uh, frameworks for governing international relations uh, challenged, and some understandably and rightly so. Uh, but we need to manage that transition, and I think the challenge for centuries coming from where we are is that there needs to be a moral authority that goes with that role, and um, obviously Brexit
0: has uh, somewhat uh, uh, reduced that moral authority. <laughs> I just want to say: is this is foreign policy then a sphere slightly more for principles than? The pragmatism that usually um, sort of characterises centrism in domestic policy, because it is focused on rules based international order, on uh, to some extent, I suppose the the ghost of uh, liberal interventionism. So, do you, is it something where actually principle matters more than in, in the international sphere? I, well, I think there probably uh, there's a there's a baseline
1: set of principles that I think um, you, you know. It, um, We'd want to apply to a liberal internationalist order, um, and uh, which are all fairly obvious. I, I don't think that means that's all there is to it, because there are still important debates around, going on around uh, liberal interventionism and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, uh, we've had a long history over the past thirty odd years of, as an international, as a, international, uh, as a um, the international society, of just swinging from one pole to the other pole in terms of interventionism and. Uh, and, uh, and then back again. So, I think there are important debates to have around that. Uh, for centrists in the UK at the moment, this seems, you know, almost too far off the uh, off the radar to really be getting into, but it doesn't mean that those issues have gone away, absolutely not.
0: All right. We've got a general election coming up. I think this is as good a time as any to move, to move on to that. So, let's start with the, the sort of issues or policy. So, are there anything that you would like to see that the current parties are not offering?
1: Yeah, well, quite a lot, I guess. I mean, it's, it, most of the, obviously the parties are covering most areas of, uh, of debate, whether they're covering them in the right way is another matter entirely. I think what we probably won't see very much on is, um, is, as I say, the productivity agenda. I don't think anybody's going to be tackling that as an issue in itself, and it really does require that kind of focus because it's too technical to be a, to be a vote winner. But it's, the, its reach in terms of uh, our failure on that front it, um, and its impact on all sorts of policy areas is huge. Um, uh, and so I think that, that's, that's a critical area. Whether we'll see much on social care or much that's going to be sufficient to build a mandate for actually... Uh, moving the uh, needle on that I don't know, I hope so increasingly urgent problem and certainly by the end of this parliament if it hasn't been solved then uh, we really are going to be in a bit of a pickle um, uh, in other areas um, uh, I guess um, we'll see, we've seen crime rising up the agenda for the public um, uh, substantially in recent years um, but I think what we're falling into is very much a traditional uh, the right's going to play a tough message and the left is going to play a soft message, um, which really, I don't think either of those perspectives are particularly encouraging um, in terms of the challenges we face. So um, I think uh, most things are going to, and then more broadly on public spending, we've got, um, certainly from the Conservative side, this fiscal stop-go uh, you know, approach where they are um, essentially, uh, you know, it's massively inefficient to have cut so deeply and then to be splurging money back in very quickly. And whether or not that can in any way be spent wisely is as uh, a massive question. They don't appear to have, uh, you know, plans in place to 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 make any kind of um, good fist of of that. And, you know, when you look at crime and policing, particularly, the the evidence is quite stark. We've seen not just cut in police numbers, but if you look at the say the charge rate per police officer. That's fallen by a sort of measure of efficiency of the police service, if you like. That's fallen by a third since 2010. Uh, so, you know, chucking 20,000 more police officers into that mix is, is is not something that's going to help, but it's not a, a way to spend money wisely. So I think there's just a, a general debate around um, the uh, the way we spend money is something that we'll probably be missing in the rush
0: to uh, spend quickly. Now, well, that's something that, has seems to have become more a part of the debate possibly admittedly only the kind of fringes that I inhabit which is some very dry and (laughs) dull people but there is increasingly in the as I say in the circles that I sort of read there is more talk of but can you actually spend this money wisely if you're going to splurge so much of it so maybe there's a sort of chink of light possibly at the end of the time um so let's talk politics then, rather than we've talked about policies, who and on what basis should centrist support in this election? Yes, difficult question. I mean, I,
1: I guess the uh, the first point I'd make is that, again, in keeping with my kind of definition of centrism, and as a style of argument, I, I'm not sure you absolutely have to be... Um, uh, uh, in favour of remaining in the EU to be a centrist, but it's kind of hard not to be. Um, uh, so I think the the priority for most moderates, given what we know will be the consequences in terms of prosperity, international standing, all sort of things, the priority has to be a uh, focus on what what best keeps, uh, is most likely to cause the UK to remain in Um, So I guess that's the the priority. Uh, Beyond that, um, it's a very difficult uh, set of choices. I think priorities for moderates is not, um, you know, political parties are perhaps less important than um, making sure that we have uh, members of parliament who are, um, you know, um, people who can uh, take a a moderate approach to things and a sensible approach in the national interest uh, instead of those that will um, further exacerbate the divisions we've got. So in some cases, the, a good, the best outcome that moderates can hope for is uh, that we see the return of more of those kind of people. And in that light, um, you know, the, the decision to stand down by a lot of uh, very capable and experienced MPs is, is very disappointing. Um, uh, but that should inform how, how people vote, I hope it will.
0: Mm. Well, something that we talked about in the podcast before is the very issue of a centrist position on the EU and whether it's possible to have a a centrist position, given that the the Lib Dems, who are obviously the main centrist party, have taken as extreme a position as the Brexit party, really, whether that's no deal or whether that's revoke and remain. They're quite extreme positions. So don't you think that a more... Um, traditional centrist position would be to go for a soft Brexit and then ne- sort of negotiated settlement along whichever lines, you know, whether that be staying in the single market or the customs union. Wouldn't that be a more s- sort of classically centrist and applying the kind of centrist uh, approaches that you've sort of talked about? Well, it's certainly true that the kind of
1: centrist uh, definitions that I've talked about uh, bring a lot of these things into, into um uh, into conflict. Um, I, I, I'm not sure whether. Um, I always find it kind of surprising to hear a remain position described as extreme, given that it's small c conservative um, and it's also, um, uh, you know, uh, given the, the, the lack of clarity over what those who want to leave actually want. Um, uh, it seems odd to describe it as uh, a continuation of the policy of the last 40 odd years. Is, is, um, Extreme. Uh, So, and to my mind, um, it is a. um, I suppose my my, um, concern with triangulating in that way on this issue is that I don't think it's a politically stable place to be. I think it's likely to uh, further entrench division. It's going. It's likely to satisfy nobody. Um, and so I don't think it offers as much of a, a way out. Uh, certainly on the economics it would be a vast improvement over um, where it looks like we're heading if, if the Conservatives win, uh, but uh, but I think this has to be about more than that, it has to be about creating some stability and, and moving on. Um, so I, I'm not sure whether it is the, the destination I would advocate.
2: Fair enough. So what well, I say is I've agonized no end over what to do about Brexit. I think I'm similar to Martin. And i thought maybe we could try and minimise economic damage but deliver it, that's better. But it's this, this conflict between do you try and avoid the kind of chaos of a bad policy leaving the EU? Um, or do you try and avoid the kind of quite difficult to specify political and social hurt that may come out of um failing to leave now it's so debatable what will happen. I mean I have weighed that up, but I think that's um Something we offer often agonise mm. on the pod.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I think it's what's under underplayed is the social and political problems that would occur if you leave as well. So you get the economic damage, and then you get you know, often this debate about you know faith in democracy, etc., um, is played as though only one half of the debate is going to be. Uh, cross if they don't get their way but um, uh, I think uh, there's there's a fair amount of evidence the, the, the other side will be too particularly when the realities start to uh, bite so you know I think we need to be careful about um, you know, there isn't an easy way out of this but I think we need to be if we've got an eye on um, uh, toning down the sense of division that there's been it's not clear to me that any of the exit options
0: will help in that regard. So I just want to Go back. So when we talked about the foreign policy and you talked about the, the importance of the sort of um, democracy and sort of liberal democracies, but isn't overturning democracy in the way of, however, stopping, overturning the result of the 2016 referendum, doesn't that set a bit of a bad precedent? I completely accept all of the, the arguments that you make around sort of economic and social damage, but isn't it quite a bad precedent to overturn uh, democratic decision in that way it would be if it was overturning it i don't really see it as overturning it. i mean a
1: liberal democracy is about setting up processes to reach decisions that are seen as legitimate and fair and i think if any body had written down what would you know how this would uh, look in any other policy area where you said do you want this thing that you've got or do you want something else and everyone voted something else uh you know i think if, if most uh, fair-minded people would probably say well When you decide what that something else looks like, maybe you should ask again. I mean, I think um, the leave side, particularly, and some of the remain side as well, have have done a bit of a job of delegitimising a a process that liberal democracy, a functioning liberal democracy, Hmm. needs to follow to arrive at uh, an outcome that people will accept. And I think. The of the process has been a real um, is a real problem, and that's going to be the biggest barrier to getting over the division uh, that we've now got. Um, so, you know, if it were to come to a, a second referendum, I wouldn't see that as an attempt to quote overturn anything. It's uh, it, as long as it was a uh, what was being put on the table was a reasonably well defined alternative destination. Uh, then it would satisfy uh, the need, from my perspective to have a a, a, a fair, full and fair process to reach a decision on this. And without that, I think there will always be uh, a lot of division about how we reach this uh, this choice. Thank you very much.
2: I'm, uh, down on Brexit. I'm starting to think about so what uh, what's a good outcome in parliament on uh, I guess December thirteenth. and I feel like a bit of a rock and a hard place, but I don't want a decisive win for either of the two main parties. But equally, I'm a little bit scared about what hung hung Parliament means. And maybe from the Brexit discussion, if you do kind of want remain, you want some kind of arrangement that allows like a referendum. Um, I think if you, and I'm still on the fence, maybe leaning against a referendum, if you don't want that, then there aren't many good outcomes that I think are possible, really. Um, I mean, it's. A, I think maybe it's quite a nice position to be a kind of a moderate on the economy and, and and, and sort of lean toward deliver Brexit in a soft way. But um, I do think it's a tricky election for moderates.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think there's... Well, as I say, there's, there isn't an easy way out from here. So, unfortunately, it's going to be... Um, uh, I mean, I, I suppose my sense uh, or, or my, my, my um, suspicion... Is that if you did end up with a somehow a second referendum and, and there was a vote uh, to um, remain, and there's there's no, doesn't by no means a foregone conclusion, but if there was, um, then I think um, actually we'd be surprised at how many people would just be. You know, quite pleased that it was all over one way or the other and, and to be honest the same is true on the on the Remain side I think if there was a defined option put out and there was a second referendum I think people would just buy it and that that's what we need to get to, we need to get to a process where people aren't angry about where we're going um, and I think probably um, you're right there's no, in terms of the parliamentary arithmetic there's no great uh, there's no obvious um, um, uh, idea and outcome but it probably is a, a I'm
2: yeah. We haven't even, and we keep doing this at the end of the podcast thinking, "Oh, we haven't talked about Scotland and how's mm-hmm. all that play in and what is the mm-hmm. price of a non-conserved government, and is that yes. another and like, it's a, And yet yeah. another headache. And mm-hmm. I, uh, without knowing much about the, the logistics of Scotland leaving the UK, that sounds like an absolute nightmare on top of a nightmare as well. Yeah,
1: I think it would make Brexit look like a, a picnic, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much deeper integration, a much smaller economy that's less of going on its own and you know, just f- it, it, it will lead to much further polarisation in both Scottish and English and um, the rest of the UK uh, politics which it, it would be uh, disastrous. So yes I'm not sure how we navigate that but um, uh, you know, I think in, in the long run Scottish independence is probably um, uh, is it, probably much more likely to happen if we do leave the EU than if we stay so maybe this is a, a price we're willing to pay.
2: But to use your phraseology, either we can get to a point, and I hope we can, and maybe it's a few years away, where people aren't angry at the, the bad destination, maybe that is a chance where more uh, conciliatory, moderate, centrist politics can come back. I mean, my fingers are
0: crossed. <laughs> yeah, it, indeed, indeed. Well, what a, uh, what a nice po- uh, point to end on, I think, and what a, a natural point. So, Steve, thank you very much. Thank Ian, thank you very, very much for taking the time. You. This has been absolutely fascinating. And, A real chance for us to look at some of the issues around centrism in depth so thank you very much thank you very much to all our listeners i hope you really enjoy this if you do please share it widely and um thank you very much for listening goodbye